Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Hope you're enjoying this summer of 2023. Today, chapters 7 and 8 from The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins as our plot develops, and you get to know all of the characters that are going to be involved. And now, chapter 7. While I was in this bewildered frame of mind, sorely needing a little quiet time by myself to put me right again, my daughter Penelope got in my way, just as her late mother used to get in my way on the stairs, and instantly summoned me to tell her all that had passed at the conference between Mr. Franklin and me. Under present circumstances, the one thing to be done was to clap the extinguisher upon Penelope's curiosity on the spot. I accordingly replied that Mr. Franklin and I had both talked of foreign politics, we could talk no longer, and had then mutually fallen asleep in the heat of the sun. Try that sort of answer when your wife or your daughter next worries you with an awkward question at an awkward time, and depend on the natural sweetness of women for kissing and making it up again at the next opportunity. The afternoon wore on, and my lady and Miss Rachel came back. Needless to say how astonished they were when they heard that Mr. Franklin Blake had arrived and had gone off again on horseback. Needless also to say that they asked awkward questions directly, and that the foreign politics and the falling asleep in the sun wouldn't serve a second time over with them. Being at the end of my invention, I said Mr. Franklin's arrival by the early train was entirely attributable to one of Mr. Franklin's freaks. Being asked upon that whether his galloping off again on horseback was another of Mr. Franklin's freaks, I said, yes it was, and slipped out of it, I think very cleverly, in that way. Having got over my difficulties with the ladies, I found more difficulties waiting for me when I went back to my own room. In came Penelope, with the natural sweetness of women, to kiss and make it up again, and, with the natural curiosity of women, to ask another question. This time she only wanted me to tell her what was the matter with our second housemaid, Rosanna Spearman. After leaving Mr. Franklin and me at the shivering sand, Rosanna, it appeared, had returned to the house in a very unaccountable state of mind. She had turned, if Penelope was to be believed, all the colors of the rainbow. She had been merry without reason, and sad without reason. In one breath, she asked hundreds of questions about Mr. Franklin Blake, and in another breath, she had been angry with Penelope for presuming to suppose that a strange gentleman could possess any interest for her. She had been surprised, smiling, and scribbling Mr. Franklin's name inside her workbox. She had been surprised again, crying and looking at her deformed shoulder in the glass. Had she and Mr. Franklin known anything of each other before today? Penelope asked. Quite impossible. Had they heard anything of each other? Impossible again. I could speak to Mr. Franklin's astonishment as genuine when I saw how the girls stared at him. Penelope could speak to the girl's inquisitiveness as genuine when she asked questions about Mr. Franklin. The conference between us, conducted in this way, was tiresome enough until my daughter suddenly ended it by bursting out with what I thought the most monstrous supposition I'd ever heard in my life. Father, says Penelope, quite seriously, there's only one explanation of it. Rosanna has fallen in love with Mr. Franklin Blake at first sight. You have all heard of beautiful young ladies falling in love at first sight, and have thought it natural enough. But a housemaid out of a reformatory, 
with a plain face and a deformed shoulder, fallen in love at first sight with a gentleman who comes on a visit to her mistress's house. Match me that, in the way of an absurdity, out of any storybook in Christendom, if you can. I laughed till the tears rolled down my cheeks. Penelope resented my merriment, in rather a strange way. I never knew you cruel before, father, she said very gently, and then she went out. My girl's words fell upon me like a splash of cold water. I was savage with myself, for feeling uneasy in myself the moment she had spoken them. But so it was. We will change the subject, if you please. I am sorry I drifted into writing about it, and not without reason, as you will see when we have gone on together a little longer. The evening came, and the dressing bell for dinner rang, before Mr. Franklin returned from Frizzing Hall. I took his hot water up to his room myself, expecting to hear, after this extraordinary delay, that something had happened. To my great disappointment, and no doubt to yours also, nothing had happened. He had not met with the Indians, either going or returning. He had deposited the moonstone in the bank, describing it merely as a valuable of great price, and he had got the receipt for it safe in his pocket. I went downstairs, feeling that this was a rather flat ending, after all our excitement about the diamond earlier in the day. How the meeting between Mr. Franklin and his aunt and cousin went off is more than I can tell you. I would have given something to have waited at the table that day, but in my position in the household, waiting at dinner, except on high family festivals, was letting down my dignity in the eyes of the other servants, a thing which my lady considered me quite prone enough to do already, without seeking occasions for it. The news brought to me from the upper regions that evening came from Penelope and the footman. Penelope mentioned that she had never known Miss Rachel so particular about the dressing of her hair, and had never seen her look so bright and pretty as she did when she went down to meet Mr. Franklin in the drawing-room. The footman's report was that the preservation of a respectful composure in the presence of his betters, and the waiting on Mr. Franklin Blake at dinner, were two of the hardest things to reconcile with each other that had ever tried his training and service. Later in the evening, we heard them singing and playing duets, Mr. Franklin piping high, Miss Rachel piping higher, and my lady on the piano, following them as it were over hedge and ditch, and seeing them safe through it in a manner most wonderful and pleasant to hear through the open windows, on the terrace at night. Later still, I went to Mr. Franklin in the smoking-room, with the soda-water and brandy, and found that Miss Rachel had put the diamond clean out of his head. "'She's the most charming girl I've seen since I came back to England,' was all I could extract from him, when I endeavored to lead the conversation to more serious things. Towards midnight, I went round the house to lock up, accompanied by my second-in-command, Samuel, the footman, as usual. When all the doors were made fast, except the side door that opened on the terrace, I sent Samuel to bed, and stepped out for a breath of fresh air before I too went to bed in my turn. The night was still and close, and the moon was at the full in the heavens. It was so silent out of doors, that I heard from time to time, very faint and low, the fall of the sea, as the ground swell heaved it in on the sandbank near the mouth of our little bay. As the house stood, the terrace side was the dark side but the broad moonlight showed fair on the gravel walk that ran along the next side of the terrace. Looking this way, 
after looking up at the sky, I saw the shadow of a person in the moonlight thrown forward from behind the corner of the house. Being old and sly, I forbore to call out, but being also, unfortunately, old and heavy, my feet betrayed me on the gravel. Before I could steal suddenly around the corner, as I had proposed, I heard lighter feet than mine, and more than one pair of them as I thought, retreating in a hurry. By the time I had got to the corner, the trespassers, whoever they were, had run into the shrubbery at the off side of the walk, and were hidden from sight among the thick trees and bushes in that part of the grounds. From the shrubbery they could easily make their way over our fence and into the road. If I had been forty years younger, I might have had a chance of catching them before they got clear of our premises. As it was, I went back to set a-going a younger pair of legs than mine. Without disturbing anybody, Samuel and I got a couple of guns, and went all round the house and through the shrubbery. Having made sure that no persons were lurking about anywhere on our grounds, we turned back. Passing over the walk where I had seen the shadow, I now noticed, for the first time, a little bright object lying on the clean gravel, under the light of the moon. Picking the object up, I discovered it was a small bottle, containing a thick, sweet-smelling liquor, as black as ink. I said nothing to Samuel, but, remembering what Penelope had told me about the jugglers, and the pouring of the little pool of ink into the palm of the boy's hand, I instantly suspected that I had disturbed the three Indians, lurking about the house, and bent, in their heathenish way, on discovering the whereabouts of the diamond that night. We'll return with Chapter 8, right after these sponsor messages. And now, Chapter 8 of The Moonstone, by Wilkie Collins. Here, for one moment, I find it necessary to call a halt. On summoning up my own recollections, and on getting Penelope to help me, by consulting her journal, I find that we may pass pretty rapidly over the interval between Mr. Franklin Blake's arrival and Miss Rachel's birthday. For the greater part of that time the days passed, and brought nothing with them worth recording. With your good leave, then, and with Penelope's help, I shall notice certain dates only in this place, reserving to myself to tell the story, day by day, once more, as soon as we get to the time when the business of the Moonstone became the chief business of everybody in our house. This said, we may now go on again, beginning, of course, with the bottle of sweet-smelling ink which I found on the gravel walk at night. On the next morning, the morning of the 26th, I showed Mr. Franklin this article of jugglery, and told him what I have already told you. His opinion was, not only that the Indians had been lurking about after the diamond, but also that they were actually foolish enough to believe in their own magic, meaning thereby the making of signs on a boy's head, and the pouring of ink into a boy's hand, and then expecting him to see persons and things beyond the reach of human vision. In our country, as well as in the East, Mr. Franklin informed me, there are people who practice this curious hocus-pocus without the ink, however, and who call it by a French name, signifying something like brightness of sight. Depend upon it, says Mr. Franklin, the Indians took it for granted that we should keep the diamond here, and they brought their clairvoyant boy to show them the way to it, if they succeeded in getting into the house last night. Do you think they'll try it again, sir? I asked. It depends, said Mr. Franklin, 
on what the boy can really do. If he can see the diamond through the iron safe of the bank of prison hall, we shall be troubled with no more visits from the Indians for the present. If he can't, we shall have another chance of catching them in the shrubbery before many more nights are over our heads. I waited pretty confidently for that latter chance, but, strange to relate, it never came. Whether the jugglers heard, in the town, of Mr. Franklin having been seen at the bank, and drew their conclusions accordingly, or whether the boy really did see the diamond where the diamond was now lodged, which I, for one, flatly disbelieve, or whether, after all, it was a mere effect of chance, this at any rate is the plain truth. Not the ghost of an Indian came near the house again through the weeks that passed before Miss Rachel's birthday. The jugglers remained in and about the town plying their trade, and Mr. Franklin and I remained waiting to see what might happen, and resolute not to put the rogues on their guard by showing our suspicions of them too soon. With this report of the proceedings on either side, ends all that I have to say about the Indians for the present. On the 29th of the month, Miss Rachel and Mr. Franklin hit on a new method of working their way together through the time that might otherwise have hung heavy on their hands. There are reasons for taking particular notice here of the occupation that amused them. You will find it has a bearing on something that is still to come. Gentlefolks in general have a very awkward rock ahead in life, the rock ahead of their own idleness, their lives being, for the most part, passed in looking about them for something to do. It is curious to see, especially when their tastes are of what is called the intellectual sort, how often they drift blindfold into some nasty pursuit. Nine times out of ten they take to torturing something, or to spoiling something, and they firmly believe they are improving their minds, when the plain truth is, they are only making a mess in the house. I have seen them, "'Ladies, I am sorry to say, as well as gentlemen. "'Go out, day after day, for example, "'with empty pill-boxes, and catch newts, "'and beetles, and spiders, and frogs, "'and come home and stick pins through the miserable wretches, "'or cut them up, without a pang of remorse, "'into little pieces. "'You see my young master, or my young mistress, "'poring over one of their spider's insides with a magnifying glass.' or you meet one of their frogs walking downstairs without his head. And when you wonder what this cruel nastiness means, you are told that it means a taste in my young master or my young mistress for natural history. Sometimes again, you see them occupied for hours together in spoiling a pretty flower with pointed instruments, out of a stupid curiosity to know what the flower is made of. Is its color any prettier, or its scent any sweeter, when you do know? But there, the poor souls must get through the time, you see. They must get through the time. You dabbled in nasty mud and made pies when you were a child, and you dabble in nasty science and dissect spiders and spoil flowers when you grow up. In the one case, and in the other, the secret of it is that you have got nothing to think of in your poor empty head and nothing to do with your poor idle hands. And so it ends in your spoiling canvas with paints, and making a smell in the house, or in keeping tadpoles in a glass box full of dirty water, and turning everybody's stomach in the house, or in chipping off bits of stone here, there, and everywhere, and dropping grit into all the victuals in the house, or in staining your fingers in the pursuit of photography, and doing injustice without mercy on everybody's face in the house, 
"'It often falls heavy enough, no doubt, "'on people who are really obliged to get their living. "'To be forced to work for the clothes that cover them, "'the roof that shelters them, "'and the food that keeps them going. "'But compare the hardest day's work you ever did "'with the idleness that splits flowers "'and pokes its way into spiders' stomachs. "'And thank your stars "'that your head has got something it must think of, "'and your hands something that they must do.' As for Mr. Franklin and Miss Rachel, they tortured nothing. I'm glad to say. They simply confined themselves to making a mess, and all they spoilt, to do them justice, was the paneling of a door. Mr. Franklin's universal genius, dabbling in everything, dabbled in what he called decorative painting. He had invented, he informed us, a new mixture to moisten paint with, which he described as a vehicle. What it was made of, I don't know. What it did, I can tell you in two words. It stank. Miss Rachel being wild to try her hand at the new process, Mr. Franklin sent to London for the materials, mixed them up with accompaniment of a smell which made the very dogs sneeze when they came into the room, put an apron and a bib over Miss Rachel's gown, and set her to work decorating her own little sitting room, called, for want of English to name it in, her boudoir. They began with the inside of the door. Mr. Franklin scraped off all the nice varnish with pumice stone and made what he described as a surface to work on. Miss Rachel then covered the surface, under his directions and with his help, with patterns and devices, griffins, birds, flowers, cupids, and such like, copied from designs made by a famous Italian painter, whose name escapes me, the one, I mean, who stocked the world with Virgin Marys, "'and had a sweetheart at the baker's. "'Viewed as work, this decoration was slow to do "'and dirty to deal with, "'but our young lady and gentleman "'never seemed to tire of it. "'When they were not riding, "'or seeing company, "'or taking their meals, "'or piping their songs, "'there they were with their heads together, "'as busy as bees, spoiling the door. "'Who was the poet who said "'that Satan finds some mischief still "'for idle hands to do?' If he had occupied my place in the family, and had seen Miss Rachel with her brush, and Mr. Franklin with his vehicle, he could have written nothing truer of either of them than that. Satan finds a mischief still for idle hands to do. The next date worthy of notice is Sunday the 4th of June. On that evening we, in the servants' hall, debated a domestic question for the first time, which, like the decoration of the door, has its bearing on something that is still to come. Seeing the pleasure which Mr. Franklin and Miss Rachel took in each other's society, and noting what a pretty match they were in all personal respects, we naturally speculated on the chance of their putting their heads together with other objects in view besides the ornamenting of a door. Some of us said there would be a wedding in the house before the summer was over. Others, led by me, admitted it was likely enough Miss Rachel might be married, but we doubted, for reasons which will presently appear, "'whether her bridegroom would be Mr. Franklin Blake. "'That Mr. Franklin was in love, on his side, "'nobody who saw and heard him could doubt. "'The difficulty was to fathom Miss Rachel. "'Let me do myself the honor of making you acquainted with her, "'after which I will leave you to fathom for yourself, if you can. "'My young lady's eighteenth birthday was the birthday now coming, "'on the twenty-first of June. "'If you happen to like dark women, who— I am informed, have gone out of fashion latterly in the gay world, 
and if you have no particular prejudice in favor of size, I answer for Miss Rachel as one of the prettiest girls your eyes ever looked upon. She was small and slim, but all in fine proportion from top to toe. To see her sit down, to see her get up, and especially to see her walk, was enough to satisfy any man in his senses that the graces of her figure, if you will pardon me the expression, were in her flesh and not in her clothes. Her hair was the blackest I ever saw. Her eyes matched her hair. Her nose was not quite large enough, I admit. Her mouth and chin were, to quote Mr. Franklin, morsels for the gods, and her complexion, on the same undeniable authority, was as warm as the sun itself, that it was always in nice order to look at. Add to the foregoing that she carried her head as upright as a dart in a dashing, spirited, thoroughbred way, that she had a clear voice with the ring of the right metal in it, and a smile that began very prettily in her eyes before it got to her lips, and there behold the portrait of her, to the best of my painting, as large as life. What about her disposition next? Had this charming creature no faults? She had just as many faults as you have, ma'am, neither more nor less. To put it seriously, my dear pretty Miss Rachel, possessing a host of graces and attractions, had one defect which strict impartiality compels me to acknowledge. She was unlike most other girls of her age in this, that she had ideas of her own, and was stiff-necked enough to set the fashions themselves at defiance, if the fashions didn't suit her views. In trifles, this independence of hers was all well enough, but in matters of importance it carried her, as my lady thought, and as I thought, too far. She judged for herself, as few women of twice her age judge in general, never asked your advice, never told you beforehand what she was going to do, never came with secrets and confidences to anybody, from her mother downwards, in little things and great, with people she loved and people she hated, and she did both with equal heartiness. Miss Rachel always went on a way of her own, sufficient for herself in the joys and sorrows of her life. Over and over again I've heard my lady say, Rachel's best friend and Rachel's worst enemy are, one and the other, Rachel herself. Add one thing more to this, and I've done. With all her secrecy and self-will, there was not so much as a shadow of anything false in her. I never remember her breaking her word. I never remember her saying no and meaning yes. I can call to mind, in her childhood, more than one occasion when the good little soul took the blame and suffered the punishment for some fault committed by a playfellow whom she loved. Nobody ever knew her to confess to it, when the thing was found out and she was charged with it afterwards. But nobody ever knew her to lie about it either. She looked you straight in the face and shook her little saucy head and said plainly, I won't tell you. Punished again for this, she would own to being sorry for saying, Won't. But, bread and butter notwithstanding, she never told you. Self-willed, devilish self-willed sometimes, I grant. But the finest creature, nevertheless, that ever walked the ways of this lower world. Perhaps you think you see a certain contradiction here. In that case, a word in your ear. Study your wife closely for the next four and twenty hours. If your good lady doesn't exhibit something in the shape of a contradiction in that time, heaven help you. You have married a monster. 
"'I have now gotten you acquainted with Miss Rachel. "'What you will find puts us face to face, "'next, but the question of that young lady's matrimonial views.' "'On June the twelfth, "'an invitation from my mistress was sent to a gentleman in London "'to come and help to keep Miss Rachel's birthday. "'This was the fortunate individual "'on whom I believed her heart to be privately set. "'Like Mr. Franklin, he was a cousin of hers. "'His name was Mr. Godfrey Abelwhite.' "'My lady's second sister. "'Don't be alarmed. "'We are not going very deep into family matters this time. "'My lady's second sister, I say, "'had a disappointment in love, "'and taking a husband afterwards, "'on the neck-or-nothing principle, "'made what they call a misalliance. "'There was terrible work in the family "'when the Honorable Caroline insisted on marrying "'plain Mr. Abelwhite, the banker at Frizinghall. "'He was very rich and very respectable.' "'and he begot a prodigious large family, "'all in his favor so far. "'But he had presumed to raise himself "'from a low station in the world, "'and that was against him. "'However, time and the progress of modern enlightenment "'put things right, "'and the misalliance passed muster very well. "'We are all getting liberal now, "'and, provided you can scratch me, "'if I scratch you, "'what do I care, in or out of Parliament?' "'whether you are a dustman or a duke. "'That's the modern way of looking at it, "'and I keep up with the modern way. "'The Abelwhites lived in a fine house and grounds, "'a little out of Frizzing Hall. "'Very worthy people, "'and greatly respected in the neighborhood. "'We shall not be much trouble with them in these pages, "'excepting Mr. Godfrey, "'who is Mr. Abelwhite's second son, "'and who must take his proper place here, if you please, "'for Miss Rachel's sake.' With all his brightness and cleverness and general good qualities, Mr. Franklin's chance of topping Mr. Godfrey in our young lady's estimation was, in my opinion, a very poor chance indeed. In the first place, Mr. Godfrey was, in point of size, the finest man by far of the two. He stood over six feet high. He had a beautiful red and white color, a smooth round face, shaved as bare as your hand, and a head of lovely long flaxen hair, falling negligently over the pole of his neck. "'but why do I try to give you this personal description of him? "'If you ever subscribe to a ladies' charity in London, "'you know Mr. Godfrey Abelwhite as well as I do. "'He was a barrister by profession, "'a ladies' man by temperament, "'and a good Samaritan by choice. "'Female benevolence and female destitution "'could do nothing without him. "'Maternal societies for confining poor women. "'Magdalen societies for rescuing poor women.' "'strong-minded societies for putting poor women into poor men's places "'and leaving the men to shift for themselves. "'He was vice-president, manager, referee to them all. "'Wherever there was a table with a committee of ladies "'sitting round it in council, "'there was Mr. Godfrey at the bottom of the board, "'keeping the temper of the committee "'and leading the dear creatures along the thorny ways of business, "'hat in hand. "'I do suppose this was the most accomplished philanthropist, "'on a small independence, that England ever produced. "'As a speaker at charitable meetings, "'the like of him for drawing your tears and your money "'was not easy to find. "'He was quite a public character. "'The last time I was in London, "'my mistress gave me two treats. "'She sent me to the theatre "'to see a dancing woman who was all the rage, "'and she sent me to Exeter Hall "'to hear Mr. Godfrey. "'The lady did it with a band of music. "'Mr. Godfrey did it, "'with a handkerchief and a glass of water. "'Crowds at the performance with the legs. 
Ditto at the performance with the tongue. And with all this, the sweetest tempered person, I allude to Mr. Godfrey, the simplest and pleasantest and easiest to please you ever met with. He loved everybody, and everybody loved him. What chance had Mr. Franklin, what chance had anybody of average reputation and capacities, against such a man as this? On the fourteenth came Mr. Godfrey's answer. He accepted my mistress's invitation from the Wednesday of the birthday to the evening of Friday when his duties to the ladies' charities would oblige him to return to town. He also enclosed a copy of verses on what he elegantly called his cousin's natal day. Miss Rachel, I was informed, joined Mr. Franklin in making fun of the verses at dinner, and Penelope, who was all on Mr. Franklin's side, asked me in great triumph what I thought of that. "'Miss Rachel has led you off on a false scent, my dear,' I replied. "'But my nose is not so easily mystified. "'Wait till Mr. Abelwhite's verses are followed by Mr. Abelwhite himself.' "'My daughter replied that Mr. Franklin might strike in and try his luck "'before the verses were followed by the poet. "'In favor of this view, I must acknowledge that Mr. Franklin left no chance untried "'of winning Miss Rachel's good graces.' Though one of the most inveterate smokers I ever met with, he gave up his cigar, because she said one day she hated the stale smell of it in his clothes. He slept so badly after this effort of self-denial, for want of the composing effect of the tobacco to which he was used, and came down morning after morning looking so haggard and worn, that Miss Rachel herself begged him to take to his cigars again. No, he would take to nothing again that would cause her a moment's annoyance. He would fight it out resolutely and get back his sleep, sooner or later, by main force of patience in waiting for it. Such devotion as this, you may say, as some of them said downstairs, could never fail of producing the right effect on Miss Rachel, backed up too, as it was, by the decorating work every day on the door. All very well, but she had a photograph of Mr. Godfrey in her bedroom, represented speaking at a public meeting with all his hair blown out by the breath of his own eloquence, and his eyes, most lovely, charming the money out of your pockets. What do you say to that? Every morning, as Penelope herself owned to me, there was the man whom the women couldn't do without, looking on, in effigy, while Miss Rachel was having her hair combed. He would be looking on, in reality, before long. That was my opinion of it. June the 16th brought an event which made Mr. Franklin's chance look, to my mind, a worse chance than ever. A strange gentleman, speaking English with a foreign accent, came that morning to the house and asked to see Mr. Franklin Blake on business. The business could not possibly have been connected with the diamond, for these two reasons. First, that Mr. Franklin told me nothing about it. Secondly, that he communicated it, when the gentleman had gone, as I suppose, to my lady. She probably hinted something about it next to her daughter. At any rate, Miss Rachel was reported to have said some severe things to Mr. Franklin at the piano that evening, about the people he had lived among, and the principles he had adopted in foreign parts. The next day, for the first time, nothing was done towards the decoration of the door. I suspect some imprudence of Mr. Franklin's on the continent, with a woman or a dead at the bottom of it, had followed him to England. But that's all guesswork. In this case, 
not only Mr. Franklin, but my lady too, for a wonder, left me in the dark. On the seventeenth, to all appearance, the cloud passed away again. They returned to their decorating work on the door, and seemed to be as good friends as ever. If Penelope was to be believed, Mr. Franklin had seized the opportunity of the reconciliation to make an offer to Miss Rachel, and had neither been accepted nor refused. My girl Penelope was sure, from signs and tokens which I need not trouble you with, that her young mistress had fought Mr. Franklin off by declining to believe that he was in earnest, and had then secretly regretted treating him in that way afterwards. Though Penelope was admitted to more familiarity with her young mistress than maids generally are, for the two had been almost brought up together as children. Still, I knew Miss Rachel's reserved character too well to believe that she would show her mind to anybody in this way. What my daughter told me on the present occasion was, as I suspected, more what she wished than what she really knew. On the 19th, another event happened. We had the doctor in the house professionally. He was summoned to prescribe for a person whom I have had occasion to present to you in these pages, our second housemaid, Rosanna Spearman. This poor girl, who had puzzled me, as you know already, at the Shivering Sands, puzzled me more than once again in the interval time of which I am now writing. Penelope's notion that her fellow servant was in love with Mr. Franklin, which my daughter, by my orders, kept strictly secret, seemed to be just as absurd as ever. But I must own that what I myself saw, and what my daughter saw also, of our second housemaid's conduct, began to look mysterious, to say the least of it. For example, the girl constantly put herself in Mr. Franklin's way, very slightly and quietly, but she did it. He took about as much notice of her as he took of the cat. It never seemed to occur to him to waste a look on Rosanna's plain face. The poor thing's appetite, never much, fell away dreadfully, and her eyes in the morning showed plain signs of waking and crying at night. One day Penelope made an awkward discovery, which we hushed up on the spot. She caught Rosanna at Mr. Franklin's dressing table, secretly removing a rose which Miss Rachel had given him to wear in his buttonhole, and putting another rose like it, of her own picking, in its place. She was, after that, once or twice impudent to me, when I gave her a well-met general hint to be careful in her conduct, and worse still, she was not over-respectful now, on the few occasions when Miss Rachel accidentally spoke to her. My lady noticed the change, and asked me what I thought about it. I tried to screen the girl by answering that I thought she was out of health, and it ended in the doctor being sent for, as already mentioned, on the 19th. He said it was her nerves, and doubted if she was fit for service. My lady offered to remove her for change of air to one of our farms, inland. She begged and prayed, with tears in her eyes, to be let to stop, and, in an evil hour, I advised my lady to try her for a little longer. As the event proved, and as you will soon see, this was the worst advice I could have given. If I could only have looked a little way into the future, I would have taken Rosanna Spearman out of the house, then and there, with my own hands. On the 20th, there came a note from Mr. Godfrey. He had arranged to stop at Frizzing Hall that night, having occasion to consult his father on business. On the afternoon of the next day, he and his two eldest sisters would ride over to us on horseback, in good time before dinner. 
An elegant little casket in China accompanied the note, presented to Miss Rachel, with her cousin's love and best wishes. Mr. Franklin had only given her a plain locket not worth half the money. My daughter Penelope, nevertheless, such is the obstinacy of women, still backed him to win. Thanks be to heaven, we have arrived at the eve of the birthday at last. You will own, I think, that I've got you over the ground this time, without much loitering by the way. Cheer up, I'll ease you with another new chapter here, and, what is more, that chapter will take you straight into the thick of the story. Thanks for joining us for these two chapters of The Moonstone by Wilkie Collins here at 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. We always appreciate reviews, so if you have a moment and if you're enjoying our story, please do take the time and send us a kind review. They're always appreciated, and they help new listeners decide to give us a try. Until next Sunday at noon Eastern time, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.